Good morning. Turn in your Bibles to Ephesians chapter 2. Today we're going to be outlining the grace of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And I'm going to be outlining for you this gospel impact on our lives practically through the grace that Paul lays out in Ephesians. I could spend weeks just on the first 10 verses of Ephesians chapter 2, but I don't have time. So I've outlined my sermon today with really a bird's eye view, and the title of it is Three Concepts of Grace. Those three concepts are the chains without grace, the triumph with grace, uh, the triumph of grace, and the new life with grace. Through those concepts, I hope to really draw you away from the, the ignorance or the complacency that, that us as Christians can really get towards the gospel. We hear it all the time. Read about it in the Bible all the time, but, but does it change our hearts? Familiarity may breed, breed ignorance, and I want us to get away from that mindset this morning. Before I start, let's pray one more time and invite the Holy Spirit into this place. Join with me. Dear Heavenly Father, I thank you for your word. I thank you for the truth of your word. Guide my stammering tongue and my foggy mind this morning. God, fill me with a humility and a passion only given through the Holy Spirit. Help me not speak words of eloquence or wisdom this morning, God, for they are frivolous words. Help me only speak the truth that you put in my mind. Guide us this morning, our hearts to be open and our ears to be open. You know, I pray, amen. Amen. Every religion spells the word D-O, do. Do this to gain salvation. Do these things, work this hard, complete these check boxes, and you will have salvation. Though in Christianity, it's a much different outlook See, Christianity spells the word done. Christ has already done everything we need for salvation. Craig Brian Larson, the author, notes that an ad for the U.S. Marines pictures a sword, and beneath it are the words earned, not given. If you were to put up a similar ad for Christianity, it may be a picture of a cross, and underneath are the words given, not earned. See, to be a Marine, you must work hard, train, and put effort in through working at it. If you become a Marine, you absolutely did deserve it. But if you become a Christian, you don't deserve it. Ephesians lays out the, the deadness of our lives. So you cannot save your own soul. And God will not save anyone who works hard to try and achieve something for themselves through salvation. Doesn't work like that. If you get it, you absolutely do not deserve it. See, our situation is that we are dead, broken, flawed people. Without the grace of God in our lives, we're left with an understanding that makes us empty. 
We need Jesus. So my big question for us all today is, why do we need grace? What is it, and what does it do in our lives? How does it impact our community? For us to better understand this question, I want us to read and hear the Word of God together. So if you haven't already, turn in your Bibles to Ephesians 2. Please do that, and please stand as I read Ephesians chapter 2. Ephesians chapter 2, starting in verse 1, says, And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, like the rest of mankind. But God... Being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. And raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith. This is not your own doing, it is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. This is God's word. Please be seated. So point one, we are in chains without grace. This is our status. Paul outlines it in verse 1. And you were dead in your trespasses and sins. The Greek word here for dead literally means corpse. It's beyond dead. You're worthless in your sins. This status was used by Paul to to establish where we were before we get to the newness of life offered in verse 5 that Christ brings us into. Paul writes, making the claim that prior to our salvation, though we may have been physically alive, we were spiritually dead, incapable of life with God, without belief equals without life. Our lack of holiness rendered us incapable of living in relationship with a holy God. I don't have to remind you that today we live in extreme paganism. It's everywhere. Paul, when he wrote this letter to the Ephesians, addressed a church in Ephesus living in extreme paganism. Ephesus was the epicenter of of pagan worship, idol worship, and he parallels that in, in our lives today because we have lots of idols around us. We have lots of things that cloud our vision, steal our joy, and occupy our time. This is why this passage is so applicable. The alienation and direct separation from God because of the sin of Adam, this moral corruptness that we are born with is sin. Romans 5 makes that abundantly clear. See, we are corrupt. We are evil. No matter how famous or wealthy we become, we are characters that are shattered. We can gain the whole world and yet lose or forfeit our very soul. 
If our single most identity is not found in Christ, we have gained nothing. Paul gives us three locks here in verse 2, held on our captive chains. Those three locks are the world, the devil, and the flesh. Verse 2 says this, in whom in which you once walked following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience. Hopefully you can see how these influences, these locks are connected. The first influence is the world. This influence around us, this sphere that claims our attention. The second influence is the devil or Satan, the prince of the power of the air, this could be translated foggy atmosphere. Really, it implies this, this darkness, this haze in front of us that blinds us to the light of Christ that is given by Satan in our life, sent to harm us and pull us apart, to draw our attention to the idols in our life. Let me ask you, it's drawing your attention this morning. It's a man of godly character who starts their prayer times with Psalm 139. See, we are, we are living our lives as Christians to emulate the character of Christ. But we fall short so often. That's why the psalmist in Psalm 139 says, Search me and know my heart. Try me and know every evil way within me. And lead me in the way everlasting. The mercies of God are new every day. Just have to accept them. Okay, back on track here. The third influence which holds us in bondage is the flesh. I'm not talking about this, this flesh that <laughs> surrounds our bony skeleton. I'm talking about our fallen, self-centered nature. Our, our DNA is disobedience. I mean, how does a kid from birth know it's wrong to take a cookie out of the cookie jar and, and disobey their mom? It's what we're born with. It's not taught. Anytime I hear these cravings of the flesh that Paul outlines, there needs to be a sharp clarification because the cravings of the flesh are drawn towards us because of our nature, our death and disobedience being the core of our foundation as humans in a fallen world. Romans 5, turn with me. Romans chapter 5, I'm going to read verses 18 to 21. Paul says this, Therefore, as one trespass led to condemnation for all men... So one act of righteousness leads to justification and life for all men. For as by the one man's disobedience, that's Adam, the many were made sinners, so by the one man's obedience, Jesus, the many will be made righteous. Now the law came to increase the trespass, but where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. So that as sin reigned in death, grace also might reign through righteousness, leading to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. Look up with me. Romans chapter 5 verse 6 says this, For while we were still weak, at the right time Christ died for the ungodly. Before 
Jesus sets us free, which the rest of the passage talks about. We are, we are subject to influences, both inside our heart and surrounding our life. Verse 3. Back to Ephesians 2, verse 3. Among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. What does that mean? See, our entire body is in sync with deadness, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind. Paul is illustrating, it's not just your heart that's leading you astray, your whole body is leading you astray. Children of wrath. It's an interesting phrase Paul uses. What is it? It means God's personal, righteous, constant hostility to evil. His outright refusal to compromise with it, and instead his resolve to condemn it. Psalm 124 talks about God hating sin in every wicked way. But this wrath in no way contradicts the love of God. Rather, it's a manifestation of his character that is holy and blameless. It's what he requires of it. So we are, we are dead, worthless people, and if that's where this book ends, why are we living here today? But thank Jesus, we have verse 4. But now, because of the death of Christ, we have been made alive in Him. He has graciously forgiven all of our trespasses, and the cause for spiritual death has been done away with. God not only removed the debt, but He destroyed the document on which the debt was written. It's gone. Psalm 103 talks about as far as the east is from the west, so has God removed our transgressions from us. Titus 2.11 says, For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation to all people. This is where hope starts. This brings me to point two, the triumph of grace. Verse 4, but God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, literally means shifting sentences. The darkness and gloom that has been sitting upon our lives no longer exists because verse 3, really verse 1, 2, 3 is contrasted now with God has rushed in and he saved you. Being dead in our trespasses, we are transported from death to life. Colossians 2 Verse 13 to 15 says, And you were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh. God made us alive together with him, having forgiven all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame, triumphing over them in him. See, the depravity of life is nothing compared to the triumph of the cross. This is a beautiful truth that God's unconditional love is explained through his true character in the heart of the gospel. Right? When we become so, so lacking of ourselves, so humble, so in need of a Savior, that we reach out to a God who welcomes us, it's in our weakness that God warrants his love upon our life. 1 John 3 says, how great 
the love the Father has lavished on us that we should be called children of God. And that is what we are. The reason the world does not know us is because it does not know Him. Time and time again, I hear words of consternation of those people who believe they, they should not or could not be loved by God. Maybe you're sitting here this morning, you're saying, Micah, if you just knew what I did, if you just knew the life I lived, God would have nothing to do with me. Maybe it's a high school student whose dating life has become promiscuous, the church man whose marriage is falling apart due to his own hardness and arrogance. Maybe it's a tradesman who, despite his own aspirations and locations and, and, and need to preach the gospel and to be a, a leader in his home has found himself caught in a cyclic web of pornography and addiction. Maybe it's a young mother who doubts she can ever regain her footing from her past. Maybe it's the young man or woman sitting here this morning who has a double life, living in secret over and over again in these situations. Their desperate souls crying out, because of what I have done, because of who I am, Jesus doesn't want me. And on the basis of justice alone, you're right. But on the basis of the cross alone, Jesus says, welcome home. See, our sin is a reminder that God is continually good, pardon me. And where I was, I never want to be again. The mercies of God are a reminder that his work in me is not complete, but it is affectionate. I'm not who I should be, but praise Jesus, I'm not who I was. It would be too much for you to forgive yourself, but God. Paul continues in verse 5. Even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. Even when you stumbled your way without hope in a destitute wasteland, Paul writes, while we were still weak in Romans, Christ died for the ungodly. He comes and welcomes us in our time of need. While we were still sinners, we are reconciled. I find it unfathomable that a holy God would reach into a world of sin and pull out a sinner as wretched as myself through his love. There's no other name given among men by which we must be saved, Acts 4.12. There's salvation found in no one else. Through God, we are made alive in a scandalous grace that we don't deserve. How does this happen? It's not because you were baptized in the church, because you were baptized as a baby, because you prayed a prayer. A, a prayer doesn't save you. If all you had to do is pray a prayer that it would be dependent upon yourself. We could boast in ourselves. You know, I prayed a prayer on this day and I'm saved. It's not what Paul dictates to the Philippian jailer. Believe in the Lord Jesus and you'll be saved. Believe. It has everything to do with God and nothing to do with you. It's God who makes us alive who breathes into our lungs the breath that we have today, who chose you to wake up this morning. 
The, the thief on the cross recognized Jesus as God's son. He didn't have an opportunity to go to Bible study. He didn't have an opportunity to get baptized, to take communion, to tithe, to share in the gospel, or to perform any other ritualistic acts as a proof of his faith. But Jesus says, today you will be with me in paradise because he believed. He's a great example of how grace through faith is given to us. If it is by grace, it's no longer on the basis of works. Otherwise, grace would no longer be called grace. Romans eleven six. If you have been trying to clean yourself up to present yourself before a holy God, clean and tidy, stop it. It's not getting you anywhere. Just give up and surrender. I've been working through something personally this summer, really ever since I got back from Istanbul. I've been racking my brain trying to figure out how to live with the brokenness of a country like Turkey. Millions and millions of people living in religiosity going to hell. And I came home with this arrogance. God, I'm going to make a difference. And in one hand, I, I held this arrogance to God like, God, I've got everything I need. Come on, use me. And in this other hand, I, I wanted to surrender. But I couldn't give up my arrogance. And here I sat with clenched fists, hoping God would use an arrogant sinner. If you've been trying to live your life out of arrogance and self-dependence and you've been trying to surrender, you can't do both. Which path are you going to take? God showed me through his Holy Spirit that if we are not preaching the gospel to ourselves every day, we revert back to trusting our own, our own experiences, our own doings, our own stuff. And we forget about God. In so doing, we take a coastal route of faith that skirts the gospel and leaves us just as empty as we were without it. In his book, What's So Amazing About Grace, Philip Yancey says, the world thirsts for grace in ways it doesn't even recognize. He writes, little wonder, the hymn Amazing Grace edged its way into the top 10 charts 200 years after its composition. The hymn's composer, John Newton, was once an infidel and a slave trader. He had been thirsty for grace. After he discovered the grace of God, he never ceased to be amazed, and people are never ceased singing amazing grace. But what is this grace? What is this surrender? You may wonder why it's taken me so long to get to a definition I really wanted to frame the gospel message with grace at the core so that you can understand the framework of what grace does for us before I give you a, <laughs> a convoluted grammatical definition. Maybe you've heard the term that grace is unmerited favor, perhaps. Maybe you've heard the term mercy without limit or favor that comes from God and is abundantly given to undeserving people. The word here in Ephesians is the Greek word charis. 
That means undeserved favor. But a scriptural theology would dictate that I don't have to go very deep into a definition of grace because God in his character is grace. God gives us mercy and grants us love, but it is grace that woos us and weds us closer to him in relationship. It's grace through the character of God that is displayed in our life, or at least should be as Christians. Any other faith is a groveling, self-dependent arrogance, not faith by grace alone, through faith alone. Yancey said this, grace means that there's nothing I can do to make God love me more. There's nothing I can do to make God love me less. Grace means that God already loves me as much as an infinite God possibly can. This doesn't mean that we can go on sinning because we have this common grace. In the words of Paul, by no means or may it never be. Through God, by grace alone, we are saved. The grace aspect is, is an active role in our life. More on that in verse 9. But through Jesus Christ, our death is swallowed up. Verse 6. And raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. The final dimension of power through the gospel that Paul explains is that we are seated with Christ in the heavenly places. Our sin is pardoned. Its power is invalid. And we are counted as God's children. We have the right to heavenly thrones beside the sun. But this heavenly seating is not merely for some day. Paul writes to the Ephesians that he raised, God raised them, past tense, from their estates of death to life through resurrection power. And, and God has breathed into the New Testament Christians that God has already seated them, past tense, because of what Christ has done in the heavenly realms. How could this be? Well, as glory is ahead for the living, our enthronement is already accomplished. Turn with me back to Ephesians chapter 1. Get to outline a couple things. See this language, verse 4 of Ephesians 1. Even as he chose us before the foundation of the world. Verse 5, he predestined us for adoption as sons. Why would he do that? In love. End of verse 4. That we should be holy and blameless before him, not carelessly sinning. May it never be. Why would he do that? Because it is according to the purpose of his will. Verse 7. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches, the riches of his grace. Okay, back to chapter 2, verse 7. So that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. There's a call to the glorification of God in spite of all our own current circumstances. We're enthroned together in the heavenly places. Despite all our gross shame, our shelled self that we once lived. He who did not spare his own son but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Romans 8.32. God has shown us immeasurable riches. 
God has shown us the grace of his kindness. Verse 8. For by grace you have been saved through faith. This is not your own doing. It is the gift of God. Grace, grace, grace. Like that old gospel hymn, grace that is greater than all my sin. It is by grace you have been saved. I've pounded on this lots during this sermon, and I, I don't want you to miss it. I don't want you to walk away from this place still thinking that you, you have to do something, that you have to achieve something, that you have to work towards something to make God pleased. That's what the Muslims did in Istanbul. I saw it every day. I saw the depravity it led to. Grace is a gift. See, we are too dead to be in our sin, to be the source of our salvation. We are too weak to be the maintainers of our salvation. We are too finite to be the eternal stewards of our salvation. The magnitude and magnificence of what our salvation involves indicates that it is merely a work of God's grace. If you think you can do it, just read your Old Testament. The Israelites tried time and time again. It doesn't work. It doesn't work. If you hope you can rock up enough points, can earn enough stuff, you can't. Because God's grace is free. All we have to do to accept it, and this is the triumph of grace. This leads me to point three. The new life with grace. Verse nine. Not a result of works so that no one may boast. See, God loves us entirely out of his mercy. And if we miss this, all we focus on is doctrines instead of the beauty of his kindness. We can't, on our time here on earth, understand the sovereignty of the mystery of the grace of God. All we can do is relish in the kindness and live a regenerate heart for the community around us. Good works follow as a result of true belief, yet grace still comes first. Max Licato, the author, said this, Mercy understood is holiness desired. Grace fosters an eagerness for good. And grace doesn't spawn a desire to sin. Yes, true faith is proved by a changed life, but the changed life isn't the way to get in right relationship with God. Grace through faith, through what Jesus did on the cross, is how we are made right with God. Our salvation is entirely a result of the gift of God by His grace alone. After hearing the gospel explained, people often say, you mean there's nothing I can do? Come on, there's got to be something I can do. It's too easy to accept the grace of the gospel. But it also gives us a mandate to live it out. More on that in verse 10. It's true, it's not cheap. It's easy to accept. But it costs God an enormous price. Through the redemption that it is in Christ Jesus, Romans 3.24, we are justified by his grace. Verse 10. We are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Hold on, you're saying uh, verse 9, it's not a result of works, and verse 10, you're saying it is a result of works. No, 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 no. We are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus 
for good works. Don't misunderstand. This means that there should be no lazy sitting on the sidelines. Uh, because we trust the sovereignty of God, I can just show up to church, can read my Bible once a month, and I'm good. That's not what this verse is talking about. See, we are not saved by good works. Rather, we are created to do them. It's the inerrant purpose of our life. Did you hear me? It's the purpose of our life. Why God has created us through the gospel of Jesus Christ, through the Great Commission. Our, our goal, our purpose is evangelism. Verbal communication evangelism. Like Mark 4, where the sower goes out and he plants seeds and then he goes to bed. <laughs> the rest is up to God. The works he has given us through the, commission, the Great Commission are a call to live a virtuous life. God prepared them, so let's walk in them. This display is for us to give glory to God. That means honor or weight to. It's not for anything we hope we can gain for ourselves. The redeeming work of chapter 1, verse 14, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it? Who is this guarantee? Verse 13, in him you also, when you heard the words of truth, the gospel of your salvation, you believed in him, you were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit. That is that paraclete, that helper that goes along with you. The Spirit is alive and active. He will show us people who are broken. It's just as he told the Romans, Paul told the Romans earlier in Romans eleven thirty six. 36, for from him and to him and through him are all things. To him be glory, both now and forever. Amen. Elizabeth Elliot said, grace can come in several forms in our life. Grace can come quietly, mysteriously, unexpectedly. Maybe violently in the case of Paul when he was struck blind by a light in Acts 9. Paul continued to live his life as the workmanship of God. Through the Holy Spirit, he wrote many books, impacted many churches for the glory of God. Not that he should boast in himself. Just as the lives and conduct of children should reflect their parents or often emulate their parents' attitudes, so our lives are a living canvas, a moldable pottery, ready to be constructed by a God who we have surrendered our lives to. As the hymn writer would say, because the sinless Savior died, my sinful soul is counted free. For God the just is satisfied to look on him and pardon me. So let's recap these three concepts of grace with an illustration. <clears throat> in the state of Saxony in eastern Germany, there are more than a dozen castles for sale, each priced at roughly a German mark. It's about 70 cents Canadian. So before you rush off and buy one of these castles, there's a catch. According to a New York Times article, each castle comes with a signed clause that you have to sign that, that agrees that you will repair that castle to its original historical architecture. <laughs> Costs somewhere between 7 and 60 million per castle. 
So while the castle itself is cheap, the renovation is extremely expensive. And it has occurred to me that buying a fixer-upper's nightmare gives us a, a picture, an example of what God has done for each of us through Jesus. Ephesians 2, 1 to 3 bluntly states our previous life. We are in chains without grace, dead in our trespasses. The hopelessness of the human condition never deters God's love because the renovation of the Father carried out through His Son begins a new life, a new creation. I'm not who I was. That is the triumph of grace, point two. Saved by grace is a gift, but God, even when we were dead in our trespasses and sins, made us alive together with Christ. Ephesians 2, verses 4 to 5. And what God purchased at the cost of his only son, he gives to us freely, and that's the new life. So renovation and renewal has finished. Since we are saved, we now walk in good works. Again, I'll reiterate, this is not a lazy ignorance, complacency. This is a communicated gospel. We are created for ministry for the sole purpose of giving glory to God. Will you, church, impact this community from the desolate lives living in selfishness. This church is in a unique position here. But will you as a church, as a community, will you become a beacon of truth in Pinoka? My prayer is this season of life as Pinoka fades into the rear view and I head towards Saskatchewan in a week. My prayer will be that you here at Pinoka First Baptist would run the race and finish well, doing the good works created through the grace of Jesus Christ upon your life, thus inheriting a crown of glory that does not spoil or fade, kept in heaven for you. I'll invite the worship team up as I pray. Gracious, gracious God, I thank you for this opportunity once again to unpack your scriptures for the weight it holds in our life. I ask that you would change our hearts, that we would live through the power of the blood of Jesus, and this power would change those around us, help us to live with a regenerate heart, broken over sin, before a holy God. Help us not to become conceited, but to actively preach the gospel to ourselves. Pray that you would give these people a good week honoring you, whatever that looks like. I pray that they would give glory to you in all circumstances. Pray this all in Jesus' name, amen.